This episode, we're going to be talking about wine, robotics, and AI, and more specifically, how robotics and AI can be used in the vineyard to look at the health and how plants are growing and take better decisions, more accurate decisions around how much water, how much fertilizers you need to apply and how you need to trim and adjust the, the vineyard to optimize for the plant's uh, growth. My guest today is Mark Decentis. Mark is the CEO of Bloomfield Robotics, uh, which is a company that does exactly what I described. And we're going to be diving into this fascinating topic. Bloomfield is based out of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, and they recently raised a funding round from um, Kubota and Onio, which are two companies very deep into the ag tech market. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mark DeSantis. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Nathan Pomart and this is Loose, the climate tech podcast. Every week we interview a founder and explore the stories, ideas, innovations and businesses behind some of the most inspiring climate tech companies that have a tangible positive impact on our planet. This show is designed to help you learn, instigate optimism and inspire further action towards addressing the climate change challenge that we face as a global community. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or investor interested in learning more about the climate tech space and how you can play a part in it, this show is for you. Mark, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you on. Today, we're going to be talking about how robotics and AI can enable uh, specialty crops growers, or let's put it more broadly, farmers, um, to optimize the amount of water and fertilizers and other uh, inputs they use to grow their plants and uh, therefore reduce their, their footprint on the planet, which I think is a fascinating topic. Welcome. I'm glad to have you on. Thank you. I'm uh, privileged to be here. I'm looking forward, to, looking forward to the discussion. I'd love for you to tell us first, what was the moment, if there was ever such a moment, that you said, okay, that's it. I'm going to go into this adventure with Bloomfield. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a, I guess you'd say a serial entrepreneur, so I've done this before in my previous company before this one, uh, which was recently sold to Michelin, the big French tire company, used imaging to assess road surfaces. Um, so I had exposure to the idea that machine AI and imaging could replace human inspectors. That's how it's done typically in a city of, say, Toulouse, France, or Los Angeles, California, humans go inspect pavement and asphalt looking for cracks and various other things. So I had that experience before I met the folks who uh, were doing research at Carnegie Mellon. Well, I sat down with George and Tim, two co-founders and researchers at Carnegie Mellon Robotics Institute, and they began a slide deck, and it showed me a slide that showed a picture of a grape, and it showed a little box that it had imaged a grape, and literally at that instant... <laughs> Yep, because I knew, having done my previous work, replace imaging, replacing human inspection, I knew exactly what they were doing, and I realized that specialty crops, a lot bigger than road surfaces, a lot, a lot more interesting, ultimately. So yeah, I made that an instant. It was love at first sight. When I saw that grape, I knew what I had to do. You went with your gut, and your gut, somehow the, there was a calling for you from your gut to the wine. If yep, you can put it this absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. 
It's awesome. And um, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about how do... So I guess we can focus on wineries, even though you serve yeah. other uh, other types of, um, of farms, to, 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 for lack yeah. of a better word. Uh, how, yeah. how do people do it today to assess how well their plants are growing and therefore what actions they need to take with regards to should I put more water or should I put more fertilizer sure. or should I put... I would love to hear this, the story of how it's done basically without your solution. Yep. One of our vineyard customers in France uh, is on a vineyard that was roughly started about the time of the Roman Empire, the, uh, the, the, the turn of the two millennia ago. And two millennia ago, when they were growing grapes, somebody would walk among the grapes and look and make observations. Ideally, that person was an expert, somebody who'd had years of experience looking at vines, grapes, tendrils, etc. That's how it's done today. Uh, now, uh, drones and satellites are being applied and have been applied in crop management for years, um, going back 30, 40 years. People put cameras in the bellies of uh, airplanes flying over fields. The challenge with specialty crops using what I would call aerial observation is you can't see through the canopy. It's very hard to see the fruit, particularly for things like apples and peaches and grapes. So you really have to be boots on the ground, and that's done by humans. And mm -hmm. the, the, challenge, the challenge with humans is, frankly, there aren't enough of us to do the uh, quantity of inspection you need to do. A typical viticulturalist or vineculturalist can inspect about 150 vines in a day. It's about a tenth of an acre. Some of our growers have ten thousand, thousands upon thousands of acres. Well, then the logical yeah. conclusion we would draw is, hey, let's use multiple inspectors. Well, if I gave the same x-ray to five radiologists, I'd get five opinions. So when you're using humans to inspect anything, you're going to get a very a great deal of subjectivity, and you're going to get disagreement. Uh, the attention level isn't there, and so on and so forth. So, But it is the best alternative to what we do, which is to use... Uh, but you have one more thing that I want to point out, and it's elemental to the, to the market, if you will, that we're in. The typical viticulturalist who's working in a vineyard will only have seen for the last few years, for the most part, their grapes. In other words, they're only inspecting the Syrah or Chardonnay grapes in their vineyard. When you can digitalize it, as we've done, and we'll talk about that, of course, we will have seen many, many vineyards, billions of grapes on a continuous basis. So that, that couldn't possibly be matched by any human brain or combination of human brains. So, so it's a different world that we're entering now. When people invest the human time to, to go check how the, the, the grapes are growing, how, how, how frequently do they do that, given the limitations that they face of having to do it themselves, basically, currently? Yep. Well, Nathan, it varies widely, and I would say even wildly. So some people do it to the extent that they can, and you vary at different times of the year. So if I backed up, there's inspection is being done really for two reasons. And I always say that the inspector, whether it's us or a human, is you're either a coach or you're functioning as a doctor. As a coach, you're looking from really the beginning of the year, February, all the way through November, you're looking at the performance of the plant against expectation. So you're looking at bud break, leaf density, and various other things that show that the path, that the, that the crop is on the right path. And if it's not, adjustments are made during the year. You're looking as a doctor because you're frankly looking for something that's dangerous or destructive. And when it's yeah. seen, 
you have to you have to deal with it right then and there. Just one example would be something called Flavissons Duray in France. It's so destructive that they don't even attempt to fix the plant. They just destroy the plant right then and there. So yeah. you're looking at both in both ways. And so the very it varies during the year depending on what activities are being done. Ideally, what's happening, and this is again new and different, is because it's we're persistent and you can inspect as often as you want. Our customers are saying, we you know, we'd like to inspect every week, sometimes every day, when normally human inspection we'd be done, you know, four or five, six times a year. I'd love to link that back to the decisions that are then taken based on that yep. information. So my understanding is those are decisions about water and those are decisions about fertilizers. Uh-huh. Did I get that right? And then what would be the others? So sometimes when you're growing crops, you want to maximize, and here's where I'm going into dangerous territory because I'm going to sound like an agronomist and my colleagues were listening right now. They get very nervous, but here we go. <laughs> you want to reduce the, you want to concentrate the energy on fruit production. And sometimes plants just produce features that sap energy and resources in the plant to something that doesn't produce fruit, like a, a shoot or leaves. In other cases, you want to maximize the sunlight in some cases on certain parts of the plant, and the leaves just grow so dense that it reduces the extent to which you can do that. In other cases, you are harvesting the crops, not all at once, but you're harvesting piecemeal. So you're going through the vineyard, yeah. some grapes, leaving others. So there's different activities and other decisions that are informed. Typically, when it comes to water and fertilizer, the approach that we take is one that is scalable. So if you imagine, you step back from it, imagine, I'll use the example of education. If each of us had tutors for each of the subjects that we needed to learn from the time we were a small child through our lives, sort of like that, you know, uh, royalty had, you know, back in the day, we would probably be a lot further in our education. Problem is, it's yeah. just not scalable. It's not scalable. So we sit in classrooms and that's essentially how farming is done. Every farmer would love to give each uh, vine the unique treatments that, uh, that that vine needs. So every vine has its own phenotypic qualities. It sort of has the ability to sort of produce at a certain rate with certain treatments. And that's unique to, vi- to the plant. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could treat each plant individually to maximize the potential of that plant? Well, you can't do it unless you actually know the condition of each plant. When That's what we do. So when we image a plant, we, we geolocate it. Well, then that allows the grower to then give unique treatment, unique to that plant at the plant level. Now, this is new and different. I should tell the listeners there's a concept that called precision agriculture. It's been around for about 50 years. And yep. the ultimate logic of that is I'm going to be precise to the plant. This day is, is, is here and now. And so if you look at the industry, you'll see that there are now people building technology, uh, irrigation systems, fertigation systems, that allow the grower to give treatment to individual plants. So if, it's, if this tells you anything, John Deere was on the cover of Wired magazine six months ago. When John Deere is on the cover of Wired Magazine as one of the leading AI companies in the world, farming has changed. And the CEO of John Deere recently said, farming is moving from managing by the acre to managing to the plant. We are on the Climate Tech Podcast, 
And so here is the moment that we link it back to, okay, what's the, what's the benefit for the planet of doing all of this? So give us a sense for how much water can you save or how much less fertilizers can you apply if you have this detailed knowledge on a sort of day-by-day -day basis, plant-by-plant -plant basis. Yeah, this is interesting. No one really knows. But right. once, what's for sure is it's going to happen. <laughs> and <laughs> the reason is um, there's no more arable land. Now, different people debate this, uh, experts far wiser than myself, but the consensus seems to be that all of the arable land that exists in the world, the, the sort of really fertile soil, the, the kind of Iowas and Ukraines, it's already being farmed. And we're talking about a 40% increase in world population over the next 30 years. So you're talking about a massive increase in population, billions of people, more people I think have been added in the last 2,000 years. So you're talking about a massive increase in population and no more arable land. Now, to add to that, You'll, you will not be able to apply the levels of fresh water that are being applied now. There's, there's going to have to be some adjustments made. So you're not only not going to be able to increase water consumption, you're going to actually have to decrease water consumption. You also likely have the situation where the fertilizers and pesticides that are common in farming right now, a lot of those are ultimately going to go away, at least not all of them, but a, a good deal of them, and people disagree about how and when, but it's it's going to happen. So when you use the phrase, people say the phrase, more with less, that is literally what is going to happen. You're going to have to do more with less. So I always say that sustainability in farming is not something that people uh, do because they think it's inherently good. They don't have a choice. There's literally yeah. no choice to do it. Yeah, there is this convergence between what the planet needs and what the farmers want because of economic and sort of scarcity yep. of supply considerations. And we've seen it this year with the fertilizer uh, scare and, you know, higher prices overall. And that's, yep. I think, an interesting convergence. Bef before we talk more about your, your customers and, and why they are interested in your solution, I'd love to spend some time for, for, for those who are uh, listening, describing your solution. So I've, I've seen the demo videos and it's yeah. basically a tractor uh, going through the, the vineyards or a small a small car, I guess. I don't know what's the, the right way to call it. <laughs> going through the vineyard with a cam camera then linked to an AI system at the back end. So that's that's my first attempt. I'm sure you can do better than that. Yeah. Well, it's it's actually more, it's more compact than that. So we, okay. we, we basically hitch a ride on anything that moves. That's the way I like to right. think of it. So what we are is a camera. Now it's not a GoPro kind of camera. It's a camera that uh, is built to accommodate the AI. And, and for those AI folks out there, they'll understand this. I, I euphemistically call it the mind-body problem, <laughs> which is you cannot use a off-the-shelf camera with bespoke AI any more than can, you can use off-the-shelf AI, if it exists, with a bespoke camera. You have to build camera and AI together. And so our camera was custom-built to allow the AI to work. So it's a, it's a dual lens. Mm -hmm. It uses what's called a global shutter, so you get, and it has its own light source. And you're getting kind of each lens is getting five frames a second. And what effect you're doing is taking images, not unlike your 
cell phone images, RGB images, and then those are combined to create a three-dimensional image of the plant. I'm, I'm going into this detail because I, I want the folks to understand that when I talk about imaging a plant, it's not the same thing that you normally think of when you think of imaging. And yeah. so we image the plant, and the reason we do it to such a degree is that that allows the AI to analyze the plant at the pixel level. That imaging then is captured on the camera. The camera is powered by whatever it's on. I mean, we've used tractors, uh, ATVs. In fact, one of our investors is Kubota, one of the world's largest tractor companies, in fact, third largest yeah. in the world. So they saw the premise of it behind it. And so we hitch a ride, captures the data. Then that camera gets to a place where it can upload the data. And in the cloud, the AI then looks at the image. And of course, as I said previously, each plant is geolocated. And the reason we do that is we're going to inspect that plant for as long as it's alive. So we're going to be looking at that vine. For every vine that we look at, and we looked at about six, almost seven million vines so far in three continents, uh, it has a name. And we're following that vine and the history and the performance of that vine. And then that's sent right back to the grower. Their dashboard shows them everything about that plant. To, to put it simply, so the viewers understand this in the fullest sense, we can tell a grower there's mold on that grape, on that cluster, on that vine. <laughs> so it's a level of detail at scale that doesn't exist anywhere in the world. So it's um, it changed farming. Is it actually real time or is there, is, is there a latency between the moment you take the imaging and the moment you have the, the summary of the condition of the plant. Yeah. It's, it's uh, within 24 hours right now. Okay. Uh, there will be a day, uh, probably we're looking at 2024, perhaps as late as 2025, where it is real time, where as the, <laughs> at the data, it will be processed literally on the device itself. And I should say to the viewer, the device is about the size of a small toaster. This is not a, yeah. a big uh, the machinery. And it'll be processed on the device, and it may, in fact, drive activity. So you might say the uh, it would inform maybe, this, maybe the, a sprayer or some other activities that necessitate a piece of uh, an action by the grower while it's moving. So that's yes. that's down the road. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about the AI part. So are you, did you have to kind of develop your own image recognition models or were you able to, you know, there has been so much advancement in that space this year that were you able to yeah. build up the back of the, the open source model or the openly available models that are out there? Well, we're, we're fortunate in the com the company was spun out of Carnegie Mellon. And uh, now there may be some folks from MIT and, and Stanford listening right now, but I'm going to say it. CMU is ranked number one in the world in artificial intelligence and robotics as well. I've just lost half of my listeners. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say we're all in the peloton. We're all in the, the pack. Though. Right. But, and so it was developed over about a decade. Little fact about Carnegie Mellon is it's been in robotics for over 40 years, and everyone understands the the uh, capabilities of the Robotics Institute, CMU. But its early work at Carnegie Mellon 40 years ago was actually in agriculture. It so it has a long history of that. And one of the things that what the founders did is, you know, in robots, a really a claim to fame for CMU among their things they've accomplished is perception. 
is the idea of a robot knowing where it is at any given time and what it's seeing, so to speak. And the founders took the perception piece and carved that out, said, we're going to make that a service. So the AI was developed at CMU, right. uh, neural net technology, specifically for knowing in effect that it's looking at a plant, the features of the plant, and so on. So we were fortunate to get a running start at this technology. Got it. And the and the training, kind of the, the training data set that was used to, I imagine you had to kind of at the beginning feed into it set of images. Yep. And species to be able to, for example, map, uh, you know, image signals to which classify into the right species, and right. then perhaps into the certain different state of those of health state of those plants. So that was done at Carnegie Mellon. And I, I give a shout out to Cornell, to the Viticulture mm -hmm. Program, uh, one of the leading viticultural programs in the world. Shout out to Cornell that the original work was done when it was at CMU in collaboration with the viticulture program at Cornell, and uh, they they did great work together. So we had a we had a data set from the you know basically in upstate New York where we still have customers, and that gave us a running start. And then it was our mission to get into a breadth of vineyards. In fact, again, part of the AI what we call the AI strategy was you want volume and you want variety because you want robust models. So we specifically went after vineyards in the United States, in Europe, and in South America. And then we specifically also went after not just wine grapes, but table and even juice grapes. And now we've expanded into blueberries. So what you do we when you do your that is, no, Exactly. That leads us to the next set of questions. Um, what what type of, if we stay with vineyards just to, to avoid like... Uh, sort of going in too many directions. What um, what are the characteristics of a vineyard that is most likely to be a good fit for your solution? Small, large, um, different yeah. types of grapes, locations. I'm not sure what is the right way to cut the cake here. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I will tell you, I'm not sure either. Uh, okay. <laughs> and because we have Figuring had success yeah. in, a, in a verb. Yeah, but I would tell you that what seems to be shaping up is two sets of customers that really get tremendous benefit from what we're doing, but in, but in different ways. One would be what I would call the high-end vineyards. These are vineyards that are probably smaller, and they might sell a bottle of their wine for two or th three, four, five thousand dollars a bottle. So okay. I can't afford the products of our customers. <laughs> But yeah. we're talking incredible, uh, you know, in France and in California primarily. And then if you go to the other end, they're what I would call the industrial growers. These are, these are growers of juice grapes, table grapes, and wine grapes that are doing it to really tens of thousands of acres. Now, they're both using the technology, but they're using it in slightly different ways. And probably the simplest way I can describe that is for the high-end vineyards, they care about quality of yield and not necessarily the volume of the yield. Mm -hmm. So they will sacrifice the size of the yield so long, long as they can in, ensure that the yield meets their quality uh, sort of profile. And it's not just a, it's not really a bar. It's more like a, a dot that you have to land on 
And so in the case of the industrial growers, euphemism there is they're really looking at the size of the yield, you know, quality, but not to the extent that the high-end vineyards. They want to make sure that they really understand their production process. So the reason we're able to satisfy two very different customers is most vineyards just don't have this information at all. So for, for the time being, we're, we're giving them a look inside what I call the black box, which is their farm. How do you start and then progress conversation with customers? Do you go direct or do you work with distributors? How does that work? Yeah, we're very fortunate now to have some partners. Most recently, we closed around capital. Among the investors is a firm called Oneo. Uh, for those who are listening, it would be O-E-N-E-O. It is a French company based in uh, Bordeaux. Uh, some of you, if you're vintners, probably have heard of Diem. Uh, it's a, a very popular cork for some of the world's leading vineyards. A company that was founded in 1836 and is, supplies 10,000 customers worldwide. They saw us and said, we've been trying to provide similar services to our customers around the world. And they do provide through us one of their subsidiaries called Vivlis. And Vivlis is one of the leading providers of what I would call high-end services to vineyards around the world. And they said, hey, this would be a great tool for us. So through them, we access customers. We have another partner in uh, a company called Oppy, O-P-P-Y. If in the United States, any... But he, that has shopped at Whole Foods has either purchased Sunview or has purchased uh, Ocean Spray uh, table grapes, and they are to some extent supplied by Oppie. Oppie is a division of Dole, <laughs> and they are an investor and a partner and a customer, and proud there. And then Kubota uh, has about uh, four million tractors used in any given day worldwide. So we're And then we also do our own approach to customers. We're fortunate, Nathan, in that a lot of our customers knocked on our door. And so we haven't had to do as much direct selling as I've had to do in previous startups. Who who within the the farm uh, is in charge of knocking on your door? What what type of role is that person having? That's interesting. We're in the throes of of expanding that team. So if anyone's listening uh, who's interested... (laughs) Typically, sure. they're, they're sort of they have to do a, a dual row, dual dual role. We call them d- uh, director of growth and partnerships. Number one is there is some direct approach, but typically the direct approach is to very large vineyards. Um, some of our vintners are some of the largest in the world, and so you're talking about a B to B kind of uh, sale where you're not just saying, "Hey, I want to service your hundred acres." Typically, it might be I want to service your thousand acres or larger. So there is a direct selling component, but the bulk of the effort is around working through the partners to say, hey, is there anybody in your portfolio that you think would be most likely to try this? Because we're still, we're at the early stage. This is the, uh, like any new tech. And so we're able to, through them, identify early adopters. And inevitably, we're finding our partners say, oh, you want to go to you want to go to XYZ Vineyard. They they are always interested in trying new things. So that's been very successful up to now. At the vineyards, within the vineyard organization, who, who is the person typically that will 
be in charge of assessing this type of new solutions? It's it's funny. They they usually fall into two categories, and for smaller vineyards, they're typically the same person. And so you have what I call the, I always use the factory analogy. I spoke at an automation conference to a bunch of people who manage factories, and I said, uh, think of the factory manager. So this is the person, the operations person who's responsible for the production of the crop for the year. So they're measured performance on yield, yield quality, and do they meet the specs to service, say, their contracts? So that's really the operations manager. And there's different titles in vineyards for that person. But think of the person who's really overall responsible for the practical aspects of getting the work done in the vineyard. That's yeah. typically a, a first conversation. Then there's a, again, using the factory analogy, you might call the manufacturing engineer. So this is the, the, the scientist, if you will, who works with the operations team to ensure the quality of the grapes. So they are constantly testing, they're doing assessments during the year, and they're typically highly qualified viticulturalists or viniculturalists, typically have degrees up to PhD. We work for some very, very smart, talented people, and they are agronomists, they are, as I say, vin vin and viticulturalists, um, horticulturalists even. They also have a say. Uh, It's funny, for the latter group, I was always concerned that we would go in there and say to somebody, you know, a vineyard that's been around for 300 years and somebody with a PhD who's been doing it there for 30 years and say, hey, we're going to help you figure out how to help grow grapes. And, you know, so you're always a little reluctant to to say that because, you know, uh uh-huh, sure, sure you are. Yeah. So, um, but but interestingly, it's really the, the, the experts who've really taken to this because now they have a volume and variety of detailed data on a continuous basis they never dreamed they would have. So right. it's been so far so good. Mark, I'm not sure to what extent you, you want to share this, but I mean, I'd love to ask you about your, your pricing model just to understand like, yeah. how does it work? Is it a subscription? Is it you sell the, the machine? Is it's a one-off thing? And then if you can, like, how much does it cost? Like, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> can I leave the, uh, the latter question? Maybe I want to... <laughs> Yeah, let's sure. just say it's. Yeah. Let's just say that's very affordable. We're not talking, okay. but the simple way to describe it is, you know, when we looked at how farmers, uh, how growers buy uh, things, they typically buy either buy equipment, finance that equipment, or they buy and purchase by the acre. And we said, let's let's just forget forget all that, and let's just charge. And we use what I call the cell phone model, which okay. is, you pay a flat fee. And you can inspect as many crops as you, uh, as often as you want. And with that flat fee, we give you a piece of hardware. You don't pay okay. for an extra fee for the hardware. Just like a cell phone, the price of that hardware, which isn't terribly expensive, is amortized into the contract. So the yeah. grower simply pays a monthly fee, and they can put that device on anything that moves, and they can image as many plants as they want, as often as they want, as fast as they can. But it's- And it's still a flat fee. And that seems to have worked pretty well. And it's part of our strategy as well because we're an AI company and AI companies grow by data. And so if yeah. we metered data collection, they'd be inhibited. We didn't want that. So we just said, hey, let's do flat fee. One last question. Um, you mentioned John Deere and some of the other sort of big precision uh, farming technologies. 
wh why does this technology emerge out of a startup like yours and not out of uh, the R&D department of a, of a John Deere or some of these other big companies? Well, so Nathan, I, I'll give you an answer that I teach entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon. So I, I have an example I'll use. Years ago, yeah. I went to Kodak and they have a museum. And in that museum, uh, when Kodak was still in existence, there was a big piece of machinery that was built in 1972 and it was a digital camera. It was big, it was about the size of a ref small refrigerator. And, um, and you think Kodak, which went out of business uh, some years ago, though had 50% of the world's uh, camera market. And you think, why would a company that had 50% or more of the world's film market that invented the digital camera 25 years before they were introduced in the market go out of business? And I think if anybody really wants a tutorial on this, read uh, Clayton Christensen, Innovator's Dilemma, former Harvard professor, he said it, which essentially is companies exist to harvest the inventions of yesteryear to maximize profit, so they're optimized to extract value from what has been created previously. For them to move resources into something that's brand new, it changes Damn the hard. incentive. Yeah. Exactly. So big companies know this. I, I am not in any way casting aspersions on big companies. Big companies have invested in us. We work with big companies. Yeah. Yeah. They understand that their structure may not be conducive to them seeing everything that's available, and that's why little startups will always exist because folks like us and other startups out there will always have opportunity because these big companies don't necessarily have the incentives and the structure to adapt to new, dramatically different new technologies. I hope that, an I hope that answer works. <laughs> well, no, it, I mean, for sure, for sure. It, I mean, who am I to judge? But yes, it, it resonates with me a lot. And it's a, it's a pattern that, you know, has been seen time and time again, that incumbent companies find it hard to be as fast and, and nimble as startups, you know, that are coming out of, you know, the leading university departments in a specific sector. I would say to Kubota's credit, they have an innovation program and they recognize that. And they have an innovation programs in Europe, the United States, and in Japan. And uh, they're, they're fully conscious of that fact, make an effort to, do, to, to find innovations like us. This one is the real last question. You, you raised a, a funding round recently. What, yeah. what, key, what key milestone are you trying to hit with that? Or what, what are basically the, the activities to which you're going to deploy the, 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 the funds towards? Sure. So we, we've moved out of what I would call the early stage. Uh, we've sort of graduated high school, if you will, as a startup, and now we're moving on in our life. And now we're at the stage where we have a product that works and it's um, commercial grade. And so our previous customers who were in the pilot stage are now using something that is a commercial grade product. In that phase, which I think lasts for a year or so, it's it's what I would call the, the, sorry for all these euphemisms, but, you know, the shakedown cruise, you know, where you take the brand new ship out to sea on its first voyage. So yeah. we're learning some things and uh, acquiring some knowledge, both in terms of the capabilities of the product, but also uh, being able to incorporate our customers' new ideas. Yeah. And so this money's will allow us to really get through this phase of what I would call first learning with commercial use and then incorporate changes into the product and then allow us to come up with a design for yet another version that we'll likely introduce in 2024 or 2025. We're excited. We've got wonderful customers, patient, thoughtful, 
incredibly smart customers. So we're fortunate to, to be in that situation. And you've mentioned that you're hiring in some key positions. So we'll put the, yeah. the link to your yeah. job openings page and you know, hopefully some of our uh, people listening or watching this will, will get um, inspired by your mission. Mark, it's, it's, been, it's been really fascinating to dive into this. Um, we've went over the kind of 30-minute mark. I hope it's okay with you. I hope Not to have problem. you back here in New oh, York terrific. time and um, and hear all about the, the progress that you've made. And we can maybe do this not around a cup of tea, but around a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that, Nathan. That'd be great. All right. Cheers. Hey, thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. You can find out more about Bloomfield on their website, bloomfield.ai. If you feel inspired by their mission, the company is hiring, so check out their job openings. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and stay tuned for more insightful conversations with inspiring climate tech founders.